welcome to the latest episode of Comeback. As always, I am your host, Connor, and today I'm talking to Duncan from Dutch Uncles. Dutch, Uncle, Dutch Uncles are a band from Manchester and also host the Chips of Cholton podcast. We're going to chat about the band and also the podcast and see where we go with the conversation. Duncan, welcome. How are you? Uh, I'm good, thanks, Connor. Nice to hear your voice from the other side of the world. <laughs> yeah, massively, man. Well, r- roughly so, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and with that, can you tell me a bit about the background then as the band? Did you all meet in Manchester when you were at school or uni? How did it all work? How were the origins of the band? Mm. Well, yeah, you know, uh, I suppose the, the the word to use would be uh, destiny. It all very, it all felt very serendipitous how we kind of came around. Uh, the uh, the rest of the band, uh, Andy, Pete, and Rob, they had known each other since primary school. In fact, two of them were born in the same hospital in the same week. So, like, that's how kind of closely tied the three of them have all been. So they've known each other since reception. Uh, and I was the year above them at the same primary school. But of course, when you're at primary school, being in a different year is like an entirely different world, isn't it? To, to many, uh, yeah, you know, in many ways. Um, unless you're in that kind of weird class where you're kind of like the back end of year one and the, no, sorry, the back end of year two and the top end of year one get put together, which uh, actually, because I was a summer baby. So anyway, I'm really digressing already. Point is, is that we all went to the same primary school, but we didn't all know each other, you know, like between the four of us. And then in secondary school, those three started a band. Uh, they called it Rodine, which is, uh, I'm not sure where it came from. Other than the fact that uh, Rob, the bass player of the band, his nickname was Rodin back then uh, because someone had spelt it wrong in a birthday card, I believe. So anyway, they started this band called Rodine and they ended up, I think that was around year nine or year 10, and they ended up featuring in a Kerrang! magazine of the top 10 unsigned bands in the country. And we were talking about this just like a couple of weeks ago, like how on earth did that ever happen? Because, I mean, of course, you know, to vote in on a thing like that, I suppose you only need a couple of hundred votes as long as it's, you know, if, if you've got an organised fan base, you can get into a top ten list. But there's absolutely no way that a band in year ten have got that kind of, uh, you know, database of fans or even friends that could even make an impact on that. So that's still a complete mystery. So I'm trying to avoid swearing. And anyway, at the same time that they were doing that and becoming hotshots called Rodine at school, I was in co- I was going into college at that point, um, and I'd heard of them through friends at the skate park and stuff. And I basically I bought a drum kit with some uh, with some um, you know when your parents give like twenty quid if you get an A at GCSE, ten if you get a B. I managed to make enough money to buy a third hand drum kit for about I don't know eighty quid or something like that of a friend. I'd heard a Strokes song uh, remixed by, it was a it was a Strokes remix of the Strokes meets Christina Aguilera. It was called, um, it was a mix of Hard to Explain and Judy in a Bottle. And I loved the sound of it so much that it made me buy this drum kit. So I buy a drum kit. I know that Rodine exists uh, through some friends of mine at the skate park. Uh, I get those friends from the skate park to form a band with me. We call that band Dutch Uncle without the S. Don't ask me how or why. It's just the way it came around. It was it was quite literally a book title in my dad's bookshelf. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, 
then and then because the other members of the band are younger than me, we can actually bid. Uh, we, we can actually enter the Battle of the Bands competition that was happening at my old secondary school. So Rodan are of course the front runners to win this thing, and I'm p- pretty much the only post student that's in any of the bands there. Which uh, looking back on it, it was probably a bit weird, but I didn't feel it at the time. So you know I me, mean, right? It's fine. We all we all flowed with it. Anyway, Dutch Uncle didn't even become podium finisher. I think we were like second to last or something because uh, we were just trying to rip off. Um, we were trying to rip off a White Stripes riff, and I think we got found out for doing that. There was a lot of politics at play, which I think is a bit harsh on kids, really, if you think about it. Um, but anyway, the big shock was that Rodine only came third. They came, uh, they came third to Raspberry Junction in second, and uh, another band called The Homeless Joe Experience in first. So I think that bruising defeat for Rodine kind of made them rethink their uh, band model. And somehow, some way, within the next couple of months, I ended up basically breaking up Dutch Uncles, sacking all of my friends, and joining Rodine. But because Andy was a better drummer than me, I became the singer. So there you go. By the time we're all 17, we're all in a band together in Marple. And we're pretty much not the only friends we have, but it's not that big a place. Because I think a lot of a lot of kids that were attending Marple Hall School, they weren't necessarily from Marple. So Marple itself, outside of school hours, didn't actually feel like a very busy place for kids. Felt like there were very few people. And so we ended up um, being a college band together. We called ourselves The Headlines, pretty much because we needed a name for a gig within a week. Uh, terrible name. It evoked nothing. It still evokes nothing. And it makes me feel nothing but emptiness whenever I hear it. Uh, and but yeah, we managed to sell a hundred tickets at college. Did some academy unsigned stuff. Started doing the Manchester set. It was really exciting because our first ever gig, as the headlines properly, was um, at Academy Three. And for us, you know, we'd seen the Killers there. We'd seen Block Party there. Uh, the other guys had seen the Future Heads there. Like, I, like we could not believe that we were playing the same stage as that. And basically, we spent the entire of college trying to be an indie band that obviously had sounded like the Strokes, but demanded on using a lot of jazzy chords and time signatures everywhere. And because of that, I mean, lyrically, I, I'm the, you know, I'm the lyricist of the band. And I think I've only really started to understand what writing lyrics is in the last two years. So you can, you can imagine that back in 2005 and six, when we were first kind of doing this stuff, just how, just how out of touch and out of place the lyrics and the uh, and the intentions and the narratives were around stuff putting on it. It was a real mishmash of stuff, very awkward writing. Uh, and eventually we finished college and all of our friends moved on to uni and then we realised we were a band with no fans again. So uh, what did we do then? Then we changed our name to Dutch Uncles because we started writing some stuff that kind of felt a bit more uh, true to... Like we spent a gap year basically listening to music in my dad's house because he was always away uh, with work and stuff. So, you know, there'd always be a weekend night available at my dad's house to just listen to records. And for us to really kind of really try and like fine tune what it is we actually like about what we're doing, why it is we do what we do. Because as I say, our entire history just feels like it's been drenched in this kind of serendipity of, well, we met, it's got to happen. We've all felt something special from it. And this is the thing we're definitely going to do for the rest of our lives. 
And I don't think we ever even questioned that till about 2014, <laughs> which is pretty good go when you think about it. Yeah, massively. And with that, when you were kicking off, obviously, you know, the style of the band, would you describe it as indie pop? Is that how you would, you know, sum up your genre? I, I would like to be able to sum it up as that, but at the time, it definitely felt more like a, an indie jazz prog for a lot of it. And there's a detail I missed out there in, in that massive rambling I just gave you, where during our college era, um, we actually got ourselves a manager uh, because we were just found ourselves playing on the same kind of lineup as this band from London called Deadfly Bukowski, uh, who don't exist anymore. Um, and their manager saw us, and I think he saw a more proggy version of the Kooks that he thought he could sell to a major label, which is, is doing him a disservice because Willie, the, the manager in question, very nice guy. I haven't got a bad word to say about him in that regard, but uh, I do think he kind of saw, he saw a malleable kind of, you know, uh, group there. He, he saw something that he thought could be trained into more of a major label setting. And it was something that kind of failed miserably. There's some really nice memories out of it. I remember we once did a demo at Metropolis Studios and I found myself doing vocals in the same room as Freddie Mercury's grand piano that he'd recorded Don't Stop Me Now on. Uh, and I mean, the songs we were recording were terrible, but for some reason, no one was telling us that and we were just kind of getting on with things and just thinking that a major label was going to bite at some point it was very strange Manchester, where you've got this renowned music scene how did you decide to not go down the route of say a roses oasis type vibe and move it to you know prog rock etc to the angle that you did actually go towards on our relationship with manchester because i remember when it came to deciding, as I say, we all had that gap year. And within that gap year, we started listening to music that we decided that, well, you know, this is what we like. We shouldn't apologize for that. We shouldn't try and fit ourselves into a major label type template if that's not what we're capable of doing. So we really started to embrace our more proggy, characteristics more so in that moment and I think within that moment and it was a song called Facing that we wrote that really made us uh, it was Facing that made change the band name to Dutch Uncles and I still remember the last headlines gig we did with absolutely nobody watching us and then a month later we should have given ourselves more than a month to rebrand but uh, we did one gig as, uh, as the headlines supporting a band called Cheeky Cheeky and the Nosebleeds at uh, Ruby Lounge to, as I say, absolutely no one. And then a month later, we were playing as Dutch Uncles, supporting Metronomy at night and day to a full, to a packed out crowd. But uh, they weren't really interested in what we had to play, naturally, at the time. Uh, but we got there in the end, I, I would like to say. Uh, but it was a strange one with, yeah, like, so at the same time that we were kind of trying to become more true and understanding the helplessness of writing i don't think i don't think bands can really help what comes out of their fingers or mouths you know i don't think we can really help ourselves not really i think it's such the talent of even writing a pop song that sounds like the things you want it to sound like is hard enough now 
to spin that further and say, well, we want you to write a pop song that sounds like this and would be more suited to, say, another artist or would fit what we find is fashionable right now. I mean, that's an incredibly difficult thing. And that's why so little music, I think, at the moment really resonates for more than two months. It's really hard to, you know, uh, write those songs that really transcend the, uh, the, the times in which they're written in. But, uh, sorry, as I, as I say, uh, yeah, at the same time that we were kind of deciding, well, we need to change our name um, for a number of reasons, not just because we found our name depressing, the headlines, but also a, another band from uh, Barnsley called The Headliners had featured on a T4 mobile unsigned show on weekend television. And we were like, oh, shit, well, they've got their first, basically. And to be honest, they can have it because both names are utterly awful, dreadful, sorry. Um, so we, we had to change our name because of that, but we sensed that we were writing different, more authentic music to our tastes. So we were changing our name for that. And yet at the same time, everyone was deciding what university they were going to go to. So we had to pose the question to ourselves, well, do we stay in Manchester or do people apply for universities outside of Manchester? And we just see if we can keep things together, you know, some other way. And thankfully, because we don't really talk about Manchester music that much within the band, I've always, I've always felt a bit torn as to the fact that I don't feel like we've ever really sort of been acknowledged as a Manchester band, because I'd like to be. And there are definitely songs where I know we've been writing a song and I think, I think this might be the song that finally slots us into that Manchester uh, legacy, you know, more clearly than perhaps before. Uh, and it's never really kind of materialised, which uh, is, a, is a little bit sad. But at the same time, I can't deny it. We've all there's nothing but animosity in our group towards you know things like Oasis and that kind of that bravado, that swagger of being northern. It's not kind of what we uh, really stand for or agree to. You know, like when we were growing up in Marple, like, and still, you know, first finding our, you know, uh, cutting our teeth with the, you know, with, with the art form of playing music, when we were doing that, you know, we were still getting <laughs> bullied and risked getting beaten up if we went out and stuff. Uh, uh, there was only one member of the band who was perceived to be rock and roll at that time, you know, by the locals, and uh, he's not even in the band anymore. So, like, I think I think we were kind of like we were like a nerd band, but before we'd ever heard of Devo. I really wish we'd heard of Devo at a younger age because it would have given us so much more. I think, uh, you know, belonging to what we were doing. Yeah, I see. And then, how did your journey then progress to getting signed? How did it develop from there? Um. You have to be lucky every five minutes in this industry. And as I say, had it not been for our sort of blindsided perception of destiny about this whole enterprise, I think we would have given up much sooner. Not that we've given up now. So, so I should just say, like, you know, I think, but I think we would have given up on our story much sooner. Um, and what happened was very, you know, Destiny is a very strange thing. And what happened was, was this, this manager, Willie, who was trying to get us on a London, you know, a London-based major label or anything like that, he got approached by a German label who were basically looking to sign an English act. There was another band that he managed 
who they wanted to sign. And he said, no, you can't have that band. They're already signed. However, I do have this other band up in Manchester. Would you be interested in signing them? And I think they were more interested in signing us from the fact that we came from Manchester and it would look good on their roster to have that. So obviously, you know, the Manchester legacy really helped us out there in, in many ways. And we went out there to Hamburg and did a, we did a nationwide tour with another band from London called Mad Staring Eyes and uh, learned a lot of lessons very quickly on that tour because Mad Staring Eyes were all in their mid to late 30s, I'm going to say. And apologies, guys, if you're listening to this and you weren't that old at the time, but, you know, you, you, looked, you looked old. <laughs> um, and we learned a lot of lessons through them because they were they were playing their hearts out. And so, I mean, we were playing our hearts out as well, but they definitely had more skin in the game. It meant more to them for this to be a successful tour than it did for us, I think. I think for us, we still felt as if, well, success will just find itself into our laps one way or another. Um, and they showed us up on the first night. Like we, we absolutely bombed the first night. They brought, they absolutely brought it home. It was in this little student town called uh, Halle, or Halle, sorry, uh, just outside of Leipzig. And then the second night, we were supposed to play another place, but uh, the gig had been cancelled. So the same venue from the first night said, "Oh, you guys can play here again. Actually, we've got nothing else booked down, and your accommodation's free, and you're getting paid in becks." crates of Bex to do it. It was like, yeah, all right, fine, we'll do that again. And we saw that was a chance to have a do-over. And we went out to a music shop and we actually pulled some extra instruments with some spare cash we had. And then we just we were just determined to have a good gig that night. And I remember it was the first time we really pulled our socks up and actually got, you know, a crowd of strangers who don't know any of your music. And we were headlining that night. So we had Mad Staring Eyes below us who obviously felt really full of pomp as to how good a gig they'd had the night before. Uh, and luckily we managed to turn the tables on them. We were just, we just, I, I can't recall how it really happened. I think maybe we broke some strings and you know, you know, like those kind of hiccups that you have where you just get over the moment and the crowd sees that you're trying and they're really behind you on it. And I think I just must've screamed instead of sang or something. I don't know what was going on. But um, anyway, we got signed to this label in Hamburg and we only did one album with them, but it was, we signed a five album deal, which was utterly insane when you think about it now. Uh, but we did one album with them and it came out as an import in the UK and it was a strange one. It felt like having a, having a label out in Hamburg felt a bit like having a long distance girlfriend because basically just nobody believed you that it was happening. Um, and we only managed to do another national, I think we did two more tours of Germany, um, but only one when the album came out. And by the time we got back from doing that with the album, uh, we'd had, I'm trying to remember what kind of radio play we'd had at that point. I still don't think, no one had really touched us still in, in the UK, certainly not. But a friend of ours who worked in the industry, who worked at BMI Publishing at the time, he kind of said to us, he, he said like, you know, this album you guys have made is actually, there's a lot of promise here and you, and you should keep going. And he would eventually become our next manager, but not straight away. Luckily, what happened was through making that album, through making that German album, the self-titled one, uh, we basically managed to prick the ears of bands in the UK that offered us to go on tour with them. So what happened was, was a Scottish band called Dan and Anacroid 
basically we played a bill with them we played a festival in manchester with them called eurocultured they really liked our set we had this album to give them they listened to the album they loved it and they invited us on tour within months and that was the first time we ever had like a proper uk tour before then doing a tour in the uk for us was uh you'd play canterbury one night and then barrow and furnace the next you know absolutely no organization and sometimes you wouldn't even do the gig by the time you get to it. I remember on that first album tour, like the, the few dates that we did do in the UK for it, because as I say, it was an import album. So it wasn't really something we had any uh, momentum behind. The, lead, the gig we had in Leeds for that night was the third story of some student bar where basically bands played in a little jazz corner next to some pool tables and the PA by the bar was still on, just playing indie tracks. And like, basically we'd driven over there, obviously knackered as, knackered to, to all hell. Why do I keep trying to sense myself as a podcast? I can swear if I want, can't I? Yeah, go for it, mate. Yeah, shit, great. Um, anyway, yeah, so we showed up to leave like completely knackered, you know, from like, you know, being on tour for the last three weeks, intercontinental tour, sorry, inter, international tour. And I climb up these stairs to try and find the stage manager. And I get there and I look at what's happening around me. I'm seeing a band play on a jazz corner that nobody gives a shit about. I can hear the pool table over the band. And not only that, but I can still hear the music that's being played at the bar on the other side of the room. And they're blasting out the Cortinas, who we just supported some years before and had some terrible memories of. So Lee and Frey kind of coming back into our story was just like, absolutely typical at that point <laughs> and i was just like i just walked back down to the stairs and i said to the guys guys we're not playing this gig we're going home so we just we uh, we feigned uh we, we pretended to the um to the booker that we'd had a puncture along the way and we just couldn't get there uh and he uh, he called bullshit on it actually and refused to pay us for the manchester gig but honestly it was only 150 quid at the time so i could not care less for the fact that, you know, like you just, you had some dignity to save at that point. But anyway, again, I digress. Uh, Dan and Agro took us on tour. That was great. Through them, we met the Future Heads and the Future Heads liked what we did on that tour. And then they invited us to play support them on their tour the following year. And in between those two tours, we ended up doing a one-off gig supporting Bombay Bicycle Club at Club Academy. I'm trying to remember who put us on for that gig. Um, it was quite a big lineup. It was it was us on first, and then Delphic on second. Oh no 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 sorry no I'm 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 chit chat I'm, I'm bullshitting you there. We you know we supported Delphic at Club Academy with Two Door Cinema Club once. That's that was a separate gig. So we played with the Bicycle Club, and anyway, um, they were they they really liked it. They really liked our style, what we did, and then they invited us on their tour, uh, there for their first album. It was a Christmas tour, uh, which was finished at the Coco in London, which was an incredible tour to do. Like that was a real, you know, like basically things moved really fast in 2009 for us. We went from, you know, basically doing one headline show of our own, just trying to peddle this album to people that would listen to then having a Dan and Alacroy tour, a Bombay Basketball Club tour and a Future Heads tour kind of penciled in for the following year. We were starting to write new songs at that point, and we were just starting to get Radio One play. Um, I'm trying to remember how radio kind of came into the mix, really. And I remember we, we wrote a single called The Ink 
in in 2009, which we played during the Dan and Alan Aykroyd tour for the first time. And at some point or another, Hugh Stevens picked it up and he was starting to play it on weekends on Radio 1. It was, everything was happening really quickly. And then, uh, and then eventually Memphis Industries uh, emailed our new, our next manager, Stephen. They just emailed him saying, oh, by the way, heard, heard that song, The Ink on the Radio, sounds really good, keep up the good work. But Stephen had a very similar mindset as our previous manager of, I want to get you on a major label, which um, we just knew wasn't, you know, we, we were still trying to give it a go. I mean, we're still trying to get played on Radio 1 now, for God's sake. You know, I mean, we, we have not learned our lessons. But, uh, you know, we eventually got around to signing with Memphis because we basically followed up that email and went, do you want to come to a studio and hear what we're making next? And we're like, yeah, we do. And then we got signed to Memphis and then the rest in a sense, is history. Yeah, no, I see. And then that was the second album, 2011, I believe. You then did some UK festivals, right? Like Reading and Leeds Festival, Latitude. Mm. Yeah, yeah. We had a really good... Um, i trying to remember how it went now. Yeah, so, so 2009, we have our kind of our first sort of... We actually start playing in England, basically. 2010... We do our future. We we tour with the Future Heads. And we start getting some festivals, some proper festivals at that point. Um, you know, in terms of like the Big Four and things like that. Although, realistically, those kind of came more around when our second album, Cadenza, was released, which was released in uh, it must have been twenty eleven, I suppose. Yeah, because it was the ten year anniversary uh, this year. Um. I remember how that kind of all played out, really. Uh, yeah, you know, we, we basically invited Memphis. We, we had a third manager at this point, so Willie had left us and Stephen had left us. Uh, and we were, I think we were left a bit headless in 2010, so our next manager, Dan, just said, well, you know, you guys have already got, you've got the ink and you've got some other songs, so I think you should just record an album, make one more, and if nothing else happens, we'll just self-release it, and that can be that. And we thought, yeah, you know, that's the thing. You know, you might as well go out on a note. If, you know, don't end in silence and end with an album. Uh, if, you know, if it's not going to go anywhere further. And that, obviously, he just went through some old emails, saw that Memphis were interested. And uh, they came up and listened to what we were doing. And we managed to get signed off that, which was obviously an incredible relief because you know, the Destiny train just kept on rolling at that point. Um, and we started getting a lot more Radio 1 plays. Zaylo picked us up at that point for a bit, and then his producer didn't like one of our music videos, and then we never got played on Radio 1 again, pretty much, which was a shame. But uh, we didn't let it kind of, you know, we didn't let it get us down or anything. Uh, but, you know, we did, but it was during that cadence round that, you know, we, all of a sudden you got Reading and Leeds, you've got Latitude, uh, you've got, we had all of them, we had Best of All, uh, we had all of them except Glastonbury, essentially. Glastonbury was the one that was always getting away from us. Yeah. Until, until about 2016. <laughs> yeah, for real. And we are going to move on to that uh, just in a little while. But before that, uh, I believe you can tell me more of 2013, is that when you supported Paramore? Yeah, it is. That was a really strange moment. 
again, you know, like Destiny plays some. Why do I keep going on about Destiny? I, I like, you know, I, I like the idea of belief, but I'm really not like into like what are the stars saying and things like that. I, I, th- I think I just still look back on it with such a fondness as to that drive that all of us have as a group to, you know, to just think, well, no, this is what we do. This is, you know, as clear as as clear as day. This is what we're going to do for as long as we're going to do it for. You know what I mean? And that feels like it's going to be forever when you're doing it in the moment. And it's such a, it, it's such a incredible feeling to have. Um, and we don't really have it anymore, but, <laughs> but we still, you know, but, you know, we're just a lot more realistic with things. So as I say, um, yeah. So when 2013 rolled around, so 2012, we released Cadenza and we toured with Wild Beasts at that uh, in that year, as well as did our first like proper headline shows like that sold out. We finally sold out some shows of our own, which was nice. And we were already writing the next album because we really went, like we were used to just going from one thing to the next. And the interesting thing about writing albums is that once you've written one, you know you can do it again. I think for everyone, the hardest album to write is their first. And although there's many things I would have changed about the way we wrote our first album, um, because I remember when we first listened back to it as a final track listing, I knew in my heart that it was a six out of 10. And that wasn't a nice feeling to have at all. But it was also like, well, you know, it's a stepping stone. You just put this out there and you make the next one 10 out of 10, you know? And once you realize that you can make a body of work and put it out there, you know you can do it again. And that is such an important thing to learn. Um, but yeah, when it came to 2013, yeah, so really strange thing happened. Like we basically, oh, was it 20? Sorry, 2011, the album came out, we did all that. 2012 was our year off where we wrote the next, we wrote the third album in 2012 and we didn't really do anything because we were told that we would have to wait six months for the next album to come out. So 2013 begins with Out of Touch in the Wild coming out in January, which for me is still our best album. It was just a really nice, simple concept of, you know, let's just change the instrumentation up. It was very... It was very well 80s influenced, you know, in a tasteful way. I think we'd learned some of that from touring with Wild Beasts because we toured with them in, across Europe during um, their Smother album, which for me is still such a masterpiece. Uh, you know, it's, it's, one of those, it's one of those bodies of work which really shows you the power of space within composition. It's just so beautifully put together. And I think it's something that we definitely took on when we wrote Out of Touch in the Wild. Uh, and although we'd gone to South by Southwest the previous year in 2012, so we felt as if we'd kind of ruined our own momentum a bit, the strangest thing happened. Uh, the guitarist of Paramore had done an interview with NME in the spring of 2013 saying that for the latest album, he'd been really influenced by old Jay and Dutch uncles. And we were just like, okay, well, that's a weird thing. And then pretty much two weeks after that article came out, we all went to attend a pub quiz in Chilton at the Dulcimer Bar. And as we were there, Rob received an email, or one of us received an email, maybe Andy, uh, from our manager that was forwarded on from Paramore's management asking for an availability check if we could support them on tour across Europe, (laughs) which, as you can imagine, was absolutely batshit um 
Pete in the band was a really big fan of Paramore at the time because obviously as a guitarist he loved playing along to Misery Business and things like that. For me, I was um, I wasn't so I mean I was indifferent, but that's because I didn't know any of their material. You know what I mean? I wasn't I didn't have a negative feeling about it whatsoever. I, I love it when these things kind of clash like this. Um, I think it's a really it's, it's, it's a beautiful moment in culture to kind of you know have these uh, mix-ups. Uh, but I was a bit like, I, but I was a bit kind of like, Whoa, um, yeah, should we do it? I mean, like, we're looking at these dates that they've sent through. And the first one is the San Siro race course in Milan. And it's a 9,000 capacity, uh, you know, uh, outdoor arena. And it was like, yeah, I mean, you know, it's better than, a, better than a kick in the teeth. Might as well, might as well give it a go if we can. <laughs> we almost couldn't do it because, um, we almost couldn't do it because some of the gigs paid really well, but the last two that were in Scandinavia, in Copenhagen and, and Oslo, pretty much paid 50 euros each. And it was like, you can't get a, a touring crew of nine people in a van up to Denmark, let alone Oslo, for 50 euros a night. <laughs> and somehow, some way, we were able to negotiate it all. Uh, and they gave us some improved fees. But yeah, we went and did this tour. And it was a month out of our schedules. Uh, we only did seven gigs. So, you know what I mean? We had about four days off in between each show, which is more time than you ever need to spend with your band. I think like, I think all bands would agree, as time goes on, you don't want days off when you're on tour. Days off are for when you literally have to pretty much pick yourself up off the floor and just go, right, can you go again? Good, go. Like, if you, you know, you don't want all that time to yourself. Oh, sorry, you don't want all that time, you know, like in each other's pockets, especially when there's a heat wave around Europe. It was 40 degrees in Austria when we played there. Couldn't believe it. Um, but those gigs were phenomenal. And it was it was really like Beatlemania at times for us. I remember that first gig in Milan, you know, we went out to the merch desk to try and see if we could push any of our albums on people, you know, knowing that we had a proggier taste than, say, Paramore's. Must have taken about 200 pictures that first night alone. And it was like that everywhere we went. Um, and Paramore was so, so welcoming, so inviting. I think they were quite taken aback by the fact that we must have been one of the first bands they've taken on tour, certainly on that level of touring, you know, like thousand capacity arenas and stuff. Um, we must have been one of the first bands they've taken on tour that weren't like trying to hang outside their dressing room and you know, like get them to talk about things and get you know, the goss or try and peddle anything onto them. Like we we treated that tour like uh, like a bunch of Louis Theroux's in many ways, and it was, and it was really nice because like especially towards the back end of the tour, we ended up like kind of having lunch with them quite a lot, like in the uh, you know catering parts of the arenas and stuff. And it was just so weird having that, that insight into what the life of a top-level rock star is like. I mean, we've always got this story of Jeremy, the bassist, who I think has left the band now, of Paramore. His wife is British, and they live in Bristol, I think. I shouldn't, I shouldn't feel too much. I mean, this was years ago, so whether they loved her anymore or not, I couldn't tell you. But... He didn't live in the UK at the time, but he said he was moving there. Like, we've just bought this house, yo. And it's like, uh, yeah, it's really nice, like kind of like a big thatched cottage. <laughs> but he had this gardening problem that he asked us if we could help with every time we ever spoke to him. He was like, yeah, the only problem I got is this goddamn bamboo in my garden. Like, do you guys know a gardener? 
you know, gardener could get hold of was like, I was like, yeah, we, we, we know a couple of landscape gardeners, but again, you're talking about Bristol and we live in Manchester. <laughs> it was just such a weird, such a weird conversation to go round and round and round in circles with, like for a whole week. You could even see like Haley's eyes were rolling at it every time it started to come up. <laughs> it was just such a... Oh, such a strange like and, and and it was really interesting getting Jeremy's take on like American culture sorry English culture because he, he really liked uh, Toby Carvery's he really liked it he was like man you open to Toby Carvery those places those places are great man you can feed his family of seven for like a hundred bucks it's great I was like yeah yeah I mean I've never been one to myself but uh I've heard of Toby Carvery's Jeremy yes <laughs> That's crazy. It's so funny. I know, but it's, it's really interesting just to know how humble and, you know, like the mindset of touring musicians, like, you know, when they're there, it's just their Monday as it is your Monday. You know what I mean? And and obviously, you know, they, they, they never did a bad show. They would always sag themselves up. Like, the, the, the gymnastics they did holding their guitars was phenomenal. Yeah. It was crazy to watch it every night, just the energy they threw into their performances. But it was also just, yeah, it was really... It's really heartening, I think, you know, just to see that kind of humble uh, mindset that they all had about things. Really, really. So, yeah, I can imagine that that would have been a surreal experience then touring with these rock stars and getting to see exclusive access into the insights of Paramore. Um, let's fast forward a bit then. So I think it was, was it your fourth album where you headlined the Ritz in Manchester, in London? Can you tell me a bit more about that? It was an interesting moment because essentially, as I said to you before, you know, we, we, we had sort of trained ourselves into like, you know, we were just writing all the time, never really, only taking time off to tour. But the writing process was getting longer for us to complete doing what we were doing, you know, to complete a body of work, it was taking us longer to do. And me and Rob, you know, we were still young people at this point. And we hadn't really experienced much in our lives outside of the band. And I think with O'Shudder was the beginning of like crap starting to show in our writing relationship, not, not between the two of us, but in terms of our struggle with writing, you know, the next chapter, you know, with, with doing something with, you know, that was authentic and had depth. Cause I think we were just really struggling to, you know, we were really struggling to be able to speak about things that I suppose listeners would identify with because we kind of lived a fairly protected life up to that point, especially within the band. You know, we, we were all in the same relationships we've been in for a number of years at that point. Um, we hadn't really, you know, we'd been able to, you know, we'd been able to make money off the band. It was, between that and the odd bit of DJing, you know, it was and, and everyone else's side jobs they had, it was our career. You know, we felt like we'd made it, we just need to make more of it. <laughs> yeah, sure. And and of course, touring with Paramore did give us not a sense of grandeur about things, but whenever you tour with a band, you're always making notes. You're always looking at, well, how do they do things? I remember when we toured with Wild Beasts, that was when I first noticed that just because you're on day 14 of the tour doesn't mean that you're allowed to not be able to sing all of a sudden. Like, you've got to be, you know what I mean? Like, they were impeccable every night. Mm. And that was something that I remember taking from them specifically, being like, 
you know, you gotta you gotta pace yourself when you're out on when you're out on the road. You can't you can't show up one night and be like, hey guys, it was Saturday night last night, you know what I'm saying? You know, you can't do anything like that. So with Paramore, you know, we were looking at, well, this is a huge rock pop band. They've taken us, you know, they've shown us a bit of what it is at the, at the very top of things. And now it's time for us to try and get some, you know, let's try and get some free gear off people. Try and, you know, push ourselves into a, you know, let's kind of work on the production side of the touring aspect. And let's let's go for broke. Let's see if we can actually make some rock pop songs. You know, if, if we've influenced them to write their, some of their most breakthrough hits, you know, like Ain't It Fun and uh, Still With You. Is it Still With You? Yes. Yeah, 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 it's cool. But sorry, just, you know, just brain fart moment there, apology. Like if we've been able to inspire them to write that, then surely we can inspire ourselves to write similar. And then we ended up spending 14 months trying to basically polish a turd that sounded like uh, Fleetwood Mac falling down a staircase with some marimbas, you know? <laughs> it was a real mishmash of stuff that we were coming up with. And, and Oh Shudder oh has some of our best songs on it. And I know that our fans hate it when I bash it. And I don't mean to bash it as an album because it definitely has its place. But I just think it should have been maybe our fifth album and not our fourth. I yeah, I think we all took for granted the idea that we were kind of an established band at that point. You know, we'd had like three playlisted singles. Um, well, no, we'd had two playlisted singles from our touch on Six Music. Like, you know, when I say that, I mean like Aliens. Um, or they got to the A-list eventually. And I think we felt as if, well, you know, well, we'll put a song out and people will listen to it because they'll know the name. And that's, you know, that's enough. You know, we've, we've got people's attention now. And that wasn't enough. And we basically wrote an album which was very scattered, I think, in terms of its ideas. A bit problematic in places. I really wish I could take a few tracks out, if I'm honest. Um, very, very introverts, very inward looking album in a negative sense, I would say. That was kind of the overwhelming, it was one that definitely looked at the insecurities of, 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 of myself, certainly, lyrically speaking. And I suppose just that fear of doom, because when you're struggling to get results and you don't know where to find help and you don't know where to find you know that inspiration then you are starting to feel like okay actually maybe there is a time limit on this and so 2014 kind of became the year that we broke a bit as a band and it resulted in one of our members leaving uh a week before the album came out which as you can imagine was not helpful yeah of course um uh, and, you know, uh, as I say, as an album, it had some moments of brilliance. I still really like I Should Have Read. I still like Baby Making, even though it's an absurd title. Uh, but we, I really wish that had been a single, actually. Uh, and, you know, I know it's a... I, I, I know sound-wise, mix-wise, it's a very established, very well-accomplished um, piece. But the mastering was so jazzy on it that whenever you heard a song on the radio, whenever it did get played on the radio, because we didn't get any playlisting, at all, um, 
it basically it just it sounded like we needed to turn the radio up whenever one of our songs came on. That's the worst feeling you can have, I think. So I think with with that and Sped leaving the band at that point, everything kind of felt like damage control with that, uh, after that. So we'd spent 14 months making this album that neither me or Rob knew what it was trying to say, really. It kind of, it, it sounded like an album that was mumbling at its shoes a lot of the time. Um, because we didn't, we didn't have that easy answer of, oh, why, why don't we just put a harp in every song? You know what I mean? If this can be the harp album, mm. you know, that's what we kind of done without a touch. You know, we've been like, ooh, what if we did Marimbas? You know, and that, you know, but that genuinely felt like, you know, that wasn't a cynical idea. It was really, you know, it was a, it was a really heartfelt, I, you know, genuine idea to do that and it worked out really well and I'm glad that we, you know, like it saved our life, you know, saved our career to do so. And then because we didn't really have that answer for Oshibu, as I say, damage control pretty much set in as soon as the album was released, as soon as Sped left, it was like, okay, now we've got to go out there, do the record store days and reveal to everyone that's shown up that we are now actually a four piece, not a five. Um, we have to, and it, and you know what I mean? It made it look as if we'd almost failed ourselves as a friendship and stuff. No, and that wasn't the case. You know, we were just young people who needed answers that I'm not sure I still know anyone in, in this life that could have given me the right answer at that point mm. um, or the band. So we had to figure it out for ourselves. And we realized as soon as songs were going to radio that we were going to have to remedy this pretty effing quick or we were just going to become a footnote. And so we quickly moved, and, uh, you know, pers personal life kind of took a bit of a nose to have as well at this point. Because, <laughs> you know, everything has to come at once, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, and so we, we, we just had to get on straight away with writing Big Balloon. Uh, because we weren't really gigging Oh Sugar. As, as you mentioned before, we did have some headline shows, but none of them sold out. We'd sort of been... We'd always been playing this game where we were trying to book in venues that were too big for us to sell out. And I was always a bit like, well, why don't we just hold back? It's more important to have a sold out show to actually look like people want to go and see you than it is to play a big place, but there's still a hundred tickets left. You know, like perception is everything. Optics is everything when it comes to this. You need to attract people to something that they may miss out on. You can't give people the impression that you'll always be there because then you get taken for granted. Yeah. Um, and, and that's what happened when it was sugar. You know, we played the Ritz, but it was a half full Ritz. We played the Coco, but it was a half full Coco. And it was great to play those venues. And those, were, those two shows were smooth as fuck. I could not believe how well we played those two, those two shows. And we even had some crowd surfers in the Manchester one. That was cool. But it was a shame that, you know, we couldn't even fill those venues to the two thirds, you know? We called it our no balconies tour. We ended up playing so many venues that year that all had balconies, but they were all shut off. It was a bit, you know, like it, it was hard to take. And, but it was a lesson, you know, it was trouble that we were running into for years but that we hadn't addressed, I think, in a lot of ways. So we got on very quickly with one big balloon. Um, and this is, yeah, this is the interesting thing about that. I mean, like the breakthrough song, Big Balloon itself, it, it's, it's, a, it's a letter from, you know, in many ways, 
I remember when it came out on the radio, the press release said it was about, you know, antidepressants and things of that nature. And, and there is some of that to that as a theme. Not that I profess to have taken antidepressants myself. Um, but there is, you know, there is that as a theme in there. But for, from my personal point of view, the song was more of a, a, a letter to um, local band Blossoms who were really soaring at that point. Mm, and I'm very happy for any band's success. It's a beautiful thing about maturing in this industry uh, that you actually just, like, you're not really critical of anyone anymore, you know? Like, because you know how hard it is to write a song and anyone that can do it, fair play to you, you know? Like, and if, if, if something's not your taste, then it's not your taste, you know? Move on. Don't dwell on things you don't like. Awful thing to do. But I remember at the time, you know, I'm, so I'm very happy for Blossoms' success, you know, and it's in their hands and, and good luck to them. Uh, but at the time, it was, I think it was quite frustrating to take the rise and rise that they were having because they were being attached with this 80s sound that everyone was saying was very positive. And we had just gone through a year where we were being called an 80s sounding band, but it was all coming from a negative place. Mm. It was coming from an idea like we didn't have any new ideas. We sounded like Tears of Fears and Kate Bush on, on Oh Sugar for some of it. And that was deemed to be a negative thing. Whereas, you know, if a band takes on a synth that sounds maybe a bit like Duran Duran or something, all of a sudden that's a great texture. It was like, well, how are you being this selective about a whole decade of fucking pop music? Like, that's not fair. You know what I mean? Like, that, that didn't feel fair. So the song Big Balloon was kind of a letter that I was writing to Blossoms saying to me, show me that it's not worth being successful because I don't want to know that it's decent. I don't want to know that it's worth having to go through all this because that's kind of how low a point it was. And I remember I was writing that. I was living in my mum's house again. I was writing that in my mum's attic in my bedroom, which was a good place to write technically because I always treat songwriting a bit like um, a bit like drilling for oil. Once you know you've written a good song someplace, you know you can do it again. Um, and that's that's definitely some advice I, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll hold with me forever. But uh, yeah, you know, so we started writing that album and, you know, wrote it all in my mum's attic, you know, my half of it at least. Um, and, and I think for us, all we wanted to do was just make some good live shows again, because I think as well with O'Sugar, and obviously with being, uh, having to make shift our new live arrangement with the new lineup and stuff, we've got a bit backing track dependent and I was a bit like, no, we, I know we're a better band than this. We can play with guitars. We can do this properly. And that was the thing for Big Balloon, is that we wanted to be a loud, direct band, you know? And, and luckily, you know, that album for me is a, is a seven and a half out of ten. Um, it's just a couple of songs on there I wish hadn't made the cut, because, as I said to you before, during No Shudder, there were some songs on there that we wrote that took about a year to complete like to complete a song, a three-minute song took a year to complete. Whereas the, 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 the mantra of the big balloon was, I don't want any song to have to take more than a month to materialise. If it takes more than a month, it means there's too much work going into it, which means it's not good enough. Um, and unfortunately, a couple of songs still ended up doing that with Big Balloon. But, you know, we finished it, and we got three singles playlisted again. You know what I mean? So it felt as if we got back to where we were four years before that yeah sure that's like the comeback aspect and also 
you'd mentioned earlier that Glastonbury had previously gotten away from you. In 2017, you made Glastonbury. Could you tell me a bit more about what that was like? Yeah, well, it was such a strange one finally getting the invite to play. Because, again, believer in destiny over here. <laughs> this podcast would testify. Um, we had a really good day on tour with Big Believer. We'd just done uh, an almost sold out show in Southampton, which we always have a good gig in Southampton. Got a lot of time for Southampton, even though it's always raining when we're there. Uh, we just played Talking Heads, the venue. Uh, and we were going on to our London show, which was on the verge of selling out. It was London Village Underground. And we had a Lion Laverne session booked in that day. And of course, we had been, we had been heading to our label who went managing us now at this point. So we we're on our fourth different managing arrangement uh, to say, look, the only the one thing we want out of this album, Glastonbury. Get to Glastonbury. I don't care what stage it is. Could be the toilet stage. Could be first on anywhere. Could be playing the goddamn Monday. You're going to get us Glastonbury. You know, we've had three singles here. We know that this is good enough to be there. Get us Glastonbury. Anything. Get us goddamn Glastonbury. It, was, it felt like a real stain on our career that we hadn't been there yet. And we'd already released four albums, you know? Mm. I've got some friends whose only gig they've ever done as a band, like only festival they've only done as a band, was playing the BBC Introducing Stage at Glastonbury. So even they were kind of being like, oh, we've played Glastonbury, don't know, you not have done it. It's like, I don't know. <laughs> it's just the one thing that keeps evading us. Now, you know, knowing how... Well, my impression as to how Glastonbury does work, you know, there's a different booker for each different stage. And ultimately, you know, they get to curate what they want and they get to play the music they like. So you've got to have someone curating a stage that likes what you're doing. And that seems fair enough, doesn't it? Anyway, we do this, we play London Village Underground. And before that, we do a Lion Laverne session. And it's the best radio session I think we've ever done. I don't know how, because we barely slept that night, because Rob thought his house was being burgled into uh, the previous night. So we hadn't really gone to sleep. And I think I'd also cut my hand really badly in Brighton the night, two nights before that. So we were quite damaged and a little bit rattled. But we rocked up to Lauren Laverne's studio, and we played the best radio session we've ever done. Couldn't believe it. And it was really engaging. And it's really it's a really intimidating thing doing the Lauren Laverne session because, you know, she knows her onions when it comes to music. And a lot of the time when you're doing those sessions, obviously they don't exist anymore because she's the breakfast show now. But it was the, you know, because it was the mid-morning show. Um, you know, you'd be talking to her at about midday, but you've been up since six to make sure that you get there on time. So your head's not really at it, you know what I mean? Your head's not really in the right place to start talking on national radio about the intricacies of your own work and about other things, you know what I mean? And just to be engaging. And yet somehow, somehow, I forgot what we talked about. I think we were maybe talking about Prefab Sprout this time. Or there was definitely a song that she was playing before we did a song and I, and I mentioned it to her, like, oh yeah, this is that from that thing, isn't it? And it was like, uh, and then she absolutely started blowing my mind with some facts about it. I was like, uh-huh, okay. And anyway, we had a really good interview, really good session. And I knew it was a good session because as soon as the session finished, she came up to me and started talking to me about insect bite creams because we'd also talked about that a bit. So she was giving me all these tips about that. I was like, 
and there was that moment I ended up being actually starstruck by Lauren Laverne because, you know, when you're in the room and you're doing your job, you know, she's her, but you're also you, and you just have to be in that room. But once you've done your bit and you don't have, you know what I mean, like, and all you're doing is packing up and going home, all of a sudden you've got Lauren Laverne there giving you tips on what the best insect bite creams to use are, and all of a sudden it's going, oh my God, she's talking to me. How and why? It's such a weird memory. It just, it just grabs you again like that. The, the radio was on in the Glastonbury office when we did that session because we got offered a slot of the Williams Green stage the next day, mm. I think. And of course, our label knew the person who was curating the Williams Green stage. <laughs> so I don't get why they didn't just come and go, by the way, they really want to do this. I still, I'm still not sure if they ever just asked on our behalf. Got there is the most important thing. We finally got there. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, it was, it was strange. I mean, I'd already been three, I'd already been twice before on a busman's holiday once after the Paramore tour. And uh, I'd been along with Stephen Sheep as a guest vocalist, um, which is the year that Kanye played, just to put it into context of timelines. Um, and Rob had been a couple of times before, but everyone else in the band hadn't been. So it was, I was more excited for them than anything else because. You know, uh, have you been, Connor? I have been, yeah. I went in yeah. 2017 and 19. Oh, there you go. Right, so you'll know that it is like no other festival. It, it, it's the size of it, but it's also the energy of it. It's, it's like an apocalyptic, yeah, it's like an apocalyptic village, but everyone's going to pill, so it's all right. An apocalyptic pillage, maybe, if you will. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like... <laughs> yeah, yeah, for real. There's definitely a feeling of a self-sustaining society there. Uh, and I know that's um, typical of something a person in my position would say, but it's true. Love it. And we go back again in a shop, hopefully when asked to do so again in the band one, you know, in, in the band one day, you never know. But um, as I say, yeah. We, so we had two gigs booked, Thursday night and Friday. Uh, we weren't getting paid for it, which is just the nature of the game, that's fine. But it also meant we had to find ourselves another gig on the Saturday to pay for actually going to Glastonbury. So it was a bit of a smash and grab. We were only there for 48 hours. Uh, less, in fact, 36 maybe. Uh, so we ended up having to play in hold for our sins on the Saturday, <laughs> uh, which annoyed everyone. But at least we got to see Radiohead uh, before leaving. Uh, and what was really worrying was we were playing on the Friday, Williams Green stage. All right, this is it. This is the moment. We have been waiting 12 years for this moment to come around. It's finally here. Look out to see what the stage looks like. And the band on before us, who were some band from Belgium, I think, I've forgotten who they were, are playing to zero people. And I mean zero. I don't mean like 10 or 20. I mean fuck all. And they played to no one. We don't even watch because we're just absolutely mortified of the fact that we're on next. Like, it's like this is the worst thing that could possibly happen. And we start setting up our gear. And we just we just set up really quickly to go. You know what? I don't want to hang around this room whilst we're setting up. So we were able to set up really quickly, and then we've got about twenty minutes to wait. And thankfully, as you can imagine, I'm not really good at holding the suspense on this. We walk out there, and it's a full tent about 1,500, 2,000 people, something like that. Yeah. And the relief was gargantuan. And um, obviously, you know, like I said before about the Wild Beast thing, you always got to make sure you 
that your energy levels are high, that you're good, and that you're able to perform to a professional quality. Mm. I think we kind of let loose a bit when we were in Glasgow. So on the Thursday night gig, I think we didn't really go to bed. So doing that Friday one was pretty much... Doing that Friday gig was exactly like doing the second night in Hallow. You know, we banged on through it, but we knew we had the songs, and it was a place of love. We, we weren't trying to prove anything to the crowd, except we, I think we were, no, we were, but we, we were trying to prove something to the crowd, but more importantly, I think we were proving it to ourselves, like, this is our moment, live up to your moment. And, I, and we had one of the best gigs we've ever done, I think, genuinely. I think we played, you know, we, we, like, we played out of our skin for that set. Um, and I'll test, uh, my dentist can testify to that because he was standing side of stage somehow. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and he stayed for the whole thing. So, Mossy, if you're listening, cheers for watching our whole set. You know, because we were on for about 50 minutes. So, there's a lot going on at Glastonbury. So, you don't expect people to hang around forever. Um, yeah. And, and I think after that, we basically, like, this was the strange thing about it. Like I say, Writing an album takes about 14 months, writing and recording to release date. And then when you tour it, touring lasts about three weeks. So that's not really a good business model, is it? Um, and so before Glastonbury, I think we'd only done about two weeks worth of touring. And I think we'd done two other festivals. So let's say for, let's say we've done 13 gigs so far of the Big Balloon Tour. Glastonbury's number 14. And after that, we come off stage, just turn around to the guys and go, guys, we're done. The album's done. Anything else that comes on after this does not matter. Every other gig after this is an afterthought. Every festival we do now, this is the glory of stag do. Let's not worry about it. And it was great. We, we, yeah, we, we had a great couple of months just winding things down, doing some more festivals, not doing the regional tours anymore because that's just bullshit. Um, yeah, and then, and I think it was probably at Glastonbury that I, I specifically remember saying, we're going to play this place again. But I also remember saying, we're going to take a break now because, you know, we almost lost our band there back in 2014. We, we rescued ourselves from the pit. People aren't initially annoyed when they hear our band name anymore, at least I don't think. <laughs> We're back to, you know, basically it felt like we got ourselves back to a, to, to point zero, you know? It felt like we got back up, back to, back to the first square, like back to go. It felt like we were back on go. And it was like, you know what? We're here now. Let's not roll the dice just yet. Let's not do that just yet. Yeah. And, and then, yeah. Sorry. And since then, what have you been up to from a musical standpoint uh, since that mm. performance? Have you been taking it easy? What's the vibe been like oh very easy yeah i mean big lesson learned through that process was don't make it your career as i said before you know <laughs> back in 2014 we had this impression that you know it was already our career and that we were you know we were making it we just hadn't made it yet you know we just had to make more of it and the stress that that put on our writing and on our relationships and on our lives, just generally in every aspect, was not worth the money. Certainly wasn't worth the tax returns. Um, and so I think, you know, 
we all kind of went, all right, well, let's let's just take it easy for a bit now. Obviously, we'll finish off the rest of the gigs we've got. But when it comes to writing, let's not think about it. Let's just get on with our, you know, we've, we've got day jobs at this point. So let's just do that. Let's just, let's just, let's just return to society because it felt as if we hadn't really been part of society for a very long time. Uh, and not, that's not to say that we're part of society now, but we're, <laughs> you know, we still all live in Chelton or thereabouts. And, uh, we still only hang out with each other for the most part. <laughs> but, but, you know, we, we've stepped back from music and we've, we've remembered what it is that we actually like about it or tried to remember what it is that got us into it in the first place, you know? Like, what was it about that Christina Aguilera Strokes remix for me that made me want to buy a drum kit? Can I find that energy again for it? Um, Robin, however, music is his career. He is a composer. So he delved into solo stuff at that point. Yeah, no, this- and he's also, you know, and, and, and to be fair... He kept writing music, right? He knows what he's doing with this. And he kept writing ideas for Dutch Uncles and just kind of posting them to the rest of the band uh, every, you know, periodically every now and then. Because, as I say, he's known Pete and Andy since primary school. And there was a long period during secondary school when they were, oh, yeah, I forgot to say, they were a band in primary school called Flower Power. I remember seeing them play at, um, at like a non-uniform day event or something like that. Yeah. But I do remember seeing them do that. And they did a Super Fairy Animals cover. In year six, you know what I mean? That's, that's, that's quite impressive. Yeah. Um, and in secondary school, when everyone else in the band of Rodine was getting bored of being in a band and wanted to make their own jackass movies, Rob still just, you know, carried on writing compositions, you know, just people on with it, just keep, kept writing songs. And that's what he was doing even when we were taking a break. So he'd send me an idea every two or three months, go, there's a new idea if you think it's got any legs, you know, stuff like that. Um, and we did start to actually put together some ideas about, I'm going to say 20, when was it? Start of 2018. We were actually starting to put some ideas together. But it very quickly came about that I have a very um, corrosive habit whenever I write. I seem to be a bit sort of uh, attracted to disaster. Mm-hmm. Um, I seem to, I, I seem to fall, I seem to, I seem to get some kind of ailment every time we've written an album. It's very strange. I don't know what happens. But um, as soon as we started writing this album, um, I seem to sort of, uh, yeah, like you know, life all of a sudden wasn't going the way I thought it was going to go. This <laughs> true. You know what I mean? Like immediately upon this happening. So immediately I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Don't let this happen again. Just step back. So I kept asking Rob, well, you know, maybe write some more laid back stuff. Maybe write something more like this. And he kept doing everything I asked him to do. But I wasn't able to write lyrics to his ideas. I would just, I just wasn't ready to do it. Um, I'd lost all ability. I'd lost all confidence in, my, in myself as to how to sing, whether I even liked my voice, whether I'd actually ever had my own voice or whether I was just always mimicking other people. Um, you know, getting hot chip comparisons back in 2013 really hurt at the time. Um, and I should just get a thicker skin for it really because that's the nature of the game. But um, it was just a hard one to take really because it was a bit like, can you just give us five minutes before you start taking the piss, you know? Yeah. Like we'd only just really kind of come through. Um, 
And so, yeah, and I still don't feel like I know what my voice is. But that being said, you know, and, and you know, here's your exclusive drop. You know, we are writing again. However, we have also written before where an album has actually collapsed. So we know that until it's actually in the can, we don't have an album until it's recorded. You know what I mean? So we're writing again is all I can say. Uh, but we're enjoying it a lot more. Um, and what you've got to do when you're doing these things, especially you take three years out from doing it, you're pretty much, again, as I say, you're, you're back at square go. And you're having to learn the process. It's a rhythm. Writing is a rhythm. As I say, Robin has never lost it. He's never stopped doing it. And I stopped doing it for three years at my end. And I, I've had to learn from the beginning all over again. And I was hoping to do that. I was hoping to wipe my memory of it because I didn't want to just do the same fucking ideas or fall into the same melody traps. Um, and I'm hoping, you know, it's going to be one of those things where I bet you when something ever does come out, and I can't say, because I genuinely can't, I don't want to say, I don't want to jinx it. Yeah, but when that time ever comes around, I'll know that I've literally been around the world twice to get to that point. And someone will hear it and just go, oh, it's slightly different. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it will sound like it literally, like the minute hand just moved wrong, you know? <laughs> yeah. But for me, I would have gone around the world twice just to get to that point. You know? Yeah. Uh, but I'm looking forward to that because I know how to enjoy it. Because like we're we're an old band now. We're we're in, we're in our what the technically I suppose we are. You know we're in our mid thirties now, um, and we don't have to put ourselves under the same pressure that I really feel for new bands being under. Uh, I attended End of the Road Festival a couple of weeks back, and uh, you know music is in great health. The, you know, the, the energy and the quality of bands that there are these days far outweighs what it was 10 years ago, if you ask me, which I know sounds a bit odd to say, but I just think there's such a strong standard these days. And, and, and everyone's jacked. You know, we have to decide, are we going to get fit or are we going to be a dad bod band? Like, what are we going to do? Um, and everyone plays really well. And everyone plays with time signatures now. It's not a weird thing. You know, I still recall and my mum probably has saved somewhere the enemy album review of our second album that began with the phrase can we shut up about time signatures you know what i mean like what kind of a, what kind of a goddamn review is that to open with yeah for real. I, re- I really i really hope that i really hope that particular writer is awash in some kind of pointless local newspaper man yeah fair enough so that's you know We've covered Sorry, she, she, she shouldn't wish ill on anyone, but that, but she really is a bitch. Um, and the worst part about that was her editor just gave it a five out of ten to make to basically make sure nobody would read it because you see five out of ten, and think there's nothing worth reading in that. Because what is five out of ten? That's not good or bad. That's just nothing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I see the point you're making, and I suppose then with that we've covered you know the music side of things before <laughs> the bring the conversation to an end. I want to touch on something slightly different from music. You know, we've obviously discussed what may or may not happen in the future and the story yeah. until now. Let's talk a bit about Chips of Cholton. You know, how did <laughs> that come about? Because as I mentioned to you before we started recording, that's when I realised that it was Dutch Uncles who were part of the pod and I put two and two together and thought, oh, that's the band I listened to at uni. And 
went from there, etc. Can you tell me a bit about Chips of Cholton? Yeah, sure. Um, so it was a first of all, it was really well timed. I'm really glad that it happened. Um, and you know what? It's something that I want to. It's something that we all want to bring back, really. So essentially, what was going on was, you know, we were taking this time off. We were just, you know, living for the weekend, essentially. <laughs> Even if I'm working the weekend at the same time, um, and you know, we are a band, but we're also best friends. So you know, we were all still living, you know, hanging out with each other all the time, playing football together two, three times a week, watching football together, and other things that don't necessarily involve football. <laughs> um, we were doing all this, and uh, Neil, our session guitarist at the time, who's probably a member now, I don't know, we should probably, should probably discuss roles <laughs> soon <laughs> before the contracts come out um, and stuff. But uh, it was Neil's idea he wanted to set up a music podcast um, and he wanted us to basically be pundits within it. So it was Neil's, it's Neil's podcast essentially, as opposed to a band one. So he presents it. We're the pundits, uh, like the mainstays, but we're always going to have a guest every time where possible. And we'll also review some chips. Now the phrase chips of Cholton, I think it came around. I'm trying to remember who came up with it. One of us came up with it. It was just, it was a phrase, I think, that just got thrown around once watching our local non-league team, Westersbury and Charlton FC, uh, where we, it just seemed like a funny phrase. To say, like, Who do you think you are? The Chips of Charlton or something? I forgot what was going on. But that, yeah, that's kind of where it came from as a, as, a, as a phrase. That's what it's supposed to imply. You know, people that think they're bigger than they are because who the hell are we to even be trying to get into the podcast game? You know, we're musicians, like... Yeah, we should we should just create the music, not not talk about it. So it was that, but it was also chip reviews of places around Chelsea because there are many many places that do serve chips, um, and we were doing chippies, but we were also doing bars that served chips. And I think the winning one, the winning chips were originally Weatherspoon's chips, but I'm just going to dock them some points for being assholes. So uh, I think. Yeah, so I think it was the Beagle, maybe, that won in the end. Okay, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, but we gave them, like, pitchfork ratings and things like that, so it was always quite a fine margin. You know, you'd have, like, like, like the top chip is, like, 7.4, the bottom chip is only 5.8, so it was really quite, you know, very technical uh, matrix we were working with there. But as I say, it was Neil's idea. He wanted to do an industry podcast. And yeah, so we started basically trying to do it to shed some light on the realities of, of, of our experiences so far within the band, but looking at things that were in the news at the same time. And then we were able to thankfully get some of our friends to come along and guest on it. So I think we had Jeremy Pritchard from Everything Everything. He came on first, and that was great. Uh, good. Good, good lad, always, always up for a good, always up for a good dig. I'm not going to call it banter, even though I just said the word, so I might as well call it banter. Um, yeah, we talked about, you know, because uh, he's uh, he's he's um, he's on the board of uh, independent venues, isn't he? So we talked a lot about the importance of small venues and also about what everything everything we're up to. Um, and it was a really nice balance of stuff. And the podcast, very much like songwriting, is a rhythm. You've got to kind of stay in it or you'll lose confidence with it and you'll kind of lose your flow. 
And had it not been for COVID, we would have kept going. Although, admittedly, we were starting to run out of guests. I was asking a lot of people and not getting any emails back. And uh, I can only take so much rejection uh, when it comes to that because it wasn't like, you know, again, I, I was just a pundit on it. You know, I was, I was happy to try and take it further, but we also needed a game plan. And, and our game plan was very informal for Chips of Chilton. But what I hope is what we can do, you know, going forward, if, as I say, you know, nothing is certain, if we can get ourselves back into a studio and actually start making an album again and become a band again, if we can do that, I, I would quite like to use Chips of Cholton to kind of document that whole process, if you know what I mean, kind of from from formal, you know, from formal start to finish, you know, like from contracts to last gig. If we can do that, that would be. I think that'd be a good way of bringing it back, really. And then it's something that we can do, you know, on tour, hopefully, and certainly at festivals. We could find guests who are also at the same festivals we're at. If you know, if, assuming we get any gigs at all, I don't even think we've got a booking agent anymore now. Yeah, sure. In fact, in fact, I think we did get a gig off for a couple of weeks ago for a wedding. <laughs> Oh, yeah. uh, of some Dutch uncles fans and it came through our old booking agent I was a bit like oh that hasn't come through him he's not getting commissioned for that <laughs> it's like he's not even our booking agent anymore funny how things go right <laughs> but yeah uh, Duncan this has been great can I just ask you got any final thoughts before we wrap this up uh, not really um, I need to save my voice as you can tell it's probably getting quite hoarse now so um, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Now, well, I'm, yeah, you know, on my microphone later this evening, so yeah, I need to save it. Um, now, my only thoughts are would be um, apologies for how much waffle there was at the beginning of this. Um, if you can edit any of that stuff from the beginning down, concise, uh, you know, the noughties years, then that would be uh, that would be wise, would they? No worries. I'll certainly take out the technical difficulties we had. But, yeah, oh yes. Yeah, Duncan, thanks for sharing the story here, mate. I really appreciate it, and the very festive look in the future. Well, thank you, Connor. Thanks very much. Uh, it's a pleasure to, pleasure to do it.